Say, uh, will you say thank you to Charmaine for that? Um, she said you'll hear a great word. I can guarantee a word. Uh, I can't guarantee a great one necessarily. Uh, hey, uh, turn to Isaiah 64. It's where we're going to anchor in today. And, and just uh, truth be told, it's going to take us a few minutes to get to it. But I, I just want to cue you into that and you can grab the QR code. A couple of years ago, I had to get a couple of root canals, which I had never had before. It was not a great experience. And I was sitting in the chair while they're, they're doing this work, and, and you go in, if you've never had one before, and there's all this preparation to be done, and they, they, my particular oral surgeon had a TV up top and invited me to pick the channel I wanted to watch on TV, which was of zero interest to me whatsoever, and then said, well, you can put on these headphones, and you can listen to whatever music you want. I had no interest in that either, and then they began to drill holes into my head. Um, <laughs> And, and canal this thing. And I had made the horrible mistake ahead of time of going on YouTube and watching a root canal on YouTube to understand, because <laughs> this is the way I am. Um, I need to know how it works before I can go in the chair. And I'm in the chair, and they're drilling holes into my brains and doing whatever it is they do in there. And these people are just chit-chatting. Like, it's just, they're going to do 14 of these this day. And the, the one nurse or assistant would come in and Ask doctor, what, what do you want on your sandwich? And they were doing sandwich orders for later. Um, and again, can we focus here, please? And then another woman came in and was asking him about a later appointment that he had. And, and he's chit-chatting. And then he would kind of sit back. And he would, oh, now, hey, did you see that thing on TV last night? And they would, they would literally just stop everything and just like have a little conversation and then he would kind of catch himself oh okay well, get back to work and he'd go back in and keep drilling holes in my brain and I am freaking out I'm a pretty low anxiety guy most of the time but I am sweating profusely I'm not in pain physically but I'm sweating I'm gripping the handrails like somebody who can't stand to fly I'm just in that and he keeps asking are you feeling pain are you okay and yeah, I don't feel pain, but I'm just thinking, can you get on with it and focus? Now, now, what he didn't know was that about 10 years prior, when Jen and I did not have health insurance, I had to get three wisdom teeth pulled. Uh, and we didn't have insurance, and it was going to be thousands of dollars, and I couldn't do it. And my dentist kept telling me, you got to get these pulled, you got to get them pulled, you got to get them pulled. And at this point, I'm 35 and had had my wisdom teeth pulled. And my dentist finally said, well, hey, if you really want, I'll yank these suckers out while you're wide awake, but Novocaine doesn't really work on me. You got to use something else, and she couldn't use the something else, so she's like, you're going to feel everything. And I was like, well, how long will it take? And she goes, about two minutes per tooth if I get it right. Um, and I was like, six minutes, save $3,000 that I don't have. Let's do this. And so I go in another week later, and she literally darn near pins me to a chair. And another, uh, Jen was in the room for this, laughing, having a whole great time. An another uh, nurse assistant literally has her, ch her knee on my chest, and they're literally yanking teeth out of my head. So while I'm getting a, a root canal 10 years later under no pain or duress, all I can think about is the pain of 10 years prior and having these teeth ripped out of my head. And as we're worshiping a few minutes ago, I, God brought all that, I think God brought all that back to me as I looked around the room and realized in that holy moment of worship, y'all may have had a lot of different experiences going on. And we all arrive at that moment with different stuff happening. 
And one song may do something to you that doesn't do to another. And you're going, why are they not responding the way I think they should? Well, because they had teeth pulled out of their head 10 years ago. And, and, and others of you may be coming off the best week of your life. And you're shouting and you're celebrating. And others may be coming off a tough week. And you've got no energy. That All the energy you had to give is that you are dressed and you are here. And I don't know what all that means other than to say that um, we hold space for one another and we say to the Spirit, we're here and you know everything that's going on, Spirit, and we just want to cooperate with what you're up to. And not everything's going to go the way all of us want it to go. And you're going to have a few conversations today in all likelihood that are like, what's with that person? Maybe you already had one. And you just don't have to know it all other than to know we've all had some teeth yanked out of our head and some of us are enduring a root canal today and some feel pain and some don't and some feel joy and some don't. And, and I, all I can do then is, is my head races back in time to that night when Jesus arrives alone in a manger in a borrowed barn or whatever that outdoor space was and people are coming and bringing gifts. And I, I can't help but wonder, how was everybody experiencing everybody else on that night? You have some people who are bringing gifts, following a star. You've got a young mom betrothed to this guy who's just given birth. She's got to be exhausted. You've got a young dad who still is trying to make sense of a virgin birth. And like, What? It's just a lot going on. And we come to all of that, and I pose the first of what will likely be many questions this morning. And the first question is, what have you placed on your Christmas list for God? Like by now, I bet you've seen a Christmas list or two. Either somebody who's written one for you and said, here's what I want for Christmas, or maybe you've even written your own Christmas list. I really like gifts of the five love languages. I have six, and so I love gifts. And so I've got a really comprehensive Christmas list, and they're organized by price, and, and I add to it each day, and my kids and Jen just roll their eyes. Dad, you are out of control. I'm like, but those are my favorite licorice sticks. Please, somebody buy them for me. Maybe you've made a Christmas list. But if you thought about what's on your list for God, like if you could ask God for one thing for Christmas that only God could do, what would it be? What would you ask God for that only God could provide, that only God could deliver? You see, there's something kind of magical about Christmas lists, obviously this sort of anticipation that comes with them. You make this list maybe in November. Maybe some of you made them in July. I don't know. And then you've got to wait. And, and, and you snoop around the house, hopefully not to the extent where you find things that you ought not. But I know in my house, there's a few closets that Jen has said, these are off limits. Nobody go. And I'm like a 13 Okay, I'm like a nine-year-old. And so I walk to the closet and I stand with my back to the closet and I slide the closet open and I go, they're all there. She goes, shut that closet right now. And okay, all right. And I shut it without looking. There's, there's just that kind of magic about Christmas and the beauty of all that, that anticipation, that waiting. 
And then, and then as time goes on, that those lists get refined and, and you arrive to Sunday morning if you're anything like me or Christmas morning, I mean. And maybe there's that thing you're like, man, I sure hope that's under the tree. I sure hope that thing is under the tree. So we take a moment and we say to God, what would be on my Christmas list from you, God? What is it from you that I'm longing for? This is all cards on the table from your friends too. This is an invitation to check in with your own transformation. Do I actually want God to continue to change me? Because if there's not anything on the list, the, the, the invitation, the prodding is to say, seek your heart and say to God, God, what do I want changed in me? What do I want to transform? Would you ask God for that item nobody on earth could afford to purchase for you? You know, the whatever it is, the boat or the vacation or the car. Oh God, would you please give me that? Well, I bought that lottery ticket. Would you please let it hit? Some of you play fantasy football for money. That sounds awful to me, but God bless you, you know. Just please tithe on the winnings. Uh, <laughs> I had to wait for a minute. I was like, oh no, are you gonna throw something? I'm just joking. Uh, as Psalm 50 says, you know, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So he's got everything. So would you ask him for something? Or would you ask him for healing for that friend or, or yourself for that thing that, that has not yet been healed? Is that what you would ask for for Christmas, knowing that God can heal all things, even that trash can? And I would just encourage you yet again to just take a moment even now and construct your list for God will be on your Christmas list. Turn with me to Isaiah 64. If you haven't already, scan the QR code. There's a bunch of resources in today's uh, talk notes on our digital program. A uh, bunch of content I'm just sure I'm not going to get to because um, the pages of this talk got longer and longer, and I'm just going to probably glaze over some stuff. And um, There's some stuff in there that I think will be helpful to you. I will likely create more questions for you today than give you answers. I may rattle your cage a bit. Um, that's not just because, like, I want to walk out of here with your cage rattled, but um, that, those resources, I think, will be helpful. Isaiah 64, oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence as fire consumes wood, and causes it to burn and water to boil, your coming would make the nations tremble. Then all your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations and how the mountains quaked. Verse four, for since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him, who works for those who wait for him. But you have been, uh, sorry, let me back up, uh, verse five. You welcome those who gladly do good, who follow godly ways. But you have been very angry with us. For we are not godly. 
We're constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. Therefore, you've turned away from us and turned us over to our sins. And yet, O Lord, you are our Father. Verse 8. We are the clay, and you're the potter. We all are formed by your hand, so don't be so angry with us, Lord. Please don't remember our sins forever. Look at us as we pray and and see that we're all your people. Your holy cities are destroyed. Zion is a wilderness. Yes, Jerusalem is a desolate ruin. The holy and beautiful temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned down and all the things of beauty are destroyed. After all this, Lord, don't miss this. If it's been a lot of words so far, try to kind of recheck in. We're almost there through the text. After all this, Lord, must you still refuse to help us? Will you continue to be silent and punish us? Pray with me if you would, Lord Jesus. God, we even pause right now and uh, pray for our little buddy out there in the hall who's just having a rough go. And uh, for a mom and dad uh, who I think are, are probably struggling to, I mean, they're amazing, but who are dealing with it. And so we just, we pray peace on them even in this moment as we hear that. Uh, God, for what it is you want to say to us today about your son Jesus through your word, let us hear that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah 63 uh, gets us, well, well, the chapter just prior to this delivers us to Isaiah 64, where we land today. And at this point in this prophetic message from Isaiah, We're just a few chapters away from the end of Isaiah's prophetic message. And I'm not going to go into tremendous detail to set all the context for the the prophetic book of Isaiah, but it can be broken up into a number of different sections. And we hit a, a really interesting section of Isaiah as we arrive at Isaiah 64 today, because in Isaiah 64, we've kind of broken from the normal pattern of the prophet Isaiah, which was largely to to either demonstrate the character of God and what kind of makes God tick and what even fires God up, as we'll look at here in a few minutes. Isaiah also really reflects back to God's people, Israel, and to Israel's enemies, what God thinks of them, and where they are to turn and to repent and to realign their lives with the way of God. We arrive at Isaiah 64, and if I'm not mistaken, it's the only only, um, chapters in Isaiah where Isaiah is actually just praying to God. It it takes on a very kind of psalmist feel to it. This is a prayer of Isaiah. This isn't a prophetic word from God. This is Isaiah praying to God reflecting back all that he said about God and about God's people. And now just, it's a prayer as he comes to sort of nearing the close of the book of Isaiah. And just as the beginnings of this chapter are a Christmas list of sorts, right? Isaiah begins with, oh, that you would come down from the heavens. This is his request of God. God, would you please come? 
In fact, uh, these kind of 10 chapters be between Isaiah 56 and Isaiah 66 in the um, one translation, the ESV, in their outline of this, they titled these 10 chapters, How to Prepare for the Coming Glory. How to Prepare for the Coming Glory. And the writing here has ceased from this kind of declarative statements about God or about his people to just reflecting a prayer on the heart of Isaiah. Oh, that you would come down. And it turns here, like most transformational prayers to God, and Isaiah reflects back to God what he has seen in and through God. He says, you did awesome deeds. The mountains quaked. You welcomed those who were godly. And then we arrive at this line that has troubled me since I first looked at the liturgical church calendar for this year and went, darn it, Isaiah 64, really? Just part of why for Advent and Lent, we typically use the church calendar because it leads us to some things that maybe your pastor and others who preach on this stage might not go to. Because in verses five through seven, look at them with me again, it really turns wildly. You welcome those who gladly do godly, who follow godly ways, but you have been very angry with us. You've been angry. He speaks of the Lord's anger in a few different instances throughout this. And at a first glance, we could probably... Um, uh, best words here. I think at first glance, we could write it off to, well, this is, see, Stu, you already said it. He, Isaiah's just praying here. And good on him. He's praying an honest prayer. And he feels like God's mad at him. And he's praying that. And I think that's true. I think he is praying, right? And this is what's on his heart. But we can't simply work it away as this is just what's going on in Isaiah because we see the language of God's anger quite a bit in Scripture. Like it comes up a lot, guys. I mean, just a few simple examples. Deuteronomy chapter 9. We're told, Lord, you were so angry you would have destroyed us. Exodus 15. You send forth your burning anger and it consumes them as chaff. Job 4.9. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger they come to an end. And then we come back to Isaiah himself, and we see similar language in Isaiah in, in chapter 5, in chapter 13, in chapter 42, in chapter 51, and those are just the ones I looked at. And I'm guessing a, a pouring out of God's anger against all of humanity or just your enemy is probably not what was at the top of your God Christmas list. I mean, that'd be fascinating if it was. And I would so love to have coffee with you and in a totally as judgment-free as I'm capable of, like, dig into that. And that'd just be a blast for me. And I think it'd be really cool. But I'm suspecting that for none of us, we, at, when asked what's on your Christmas list from God, your top of your Christmas list wasn't, God, that you would pour out your anger on those I now list, you know, like Billy Madison's list. So there's really just kind of two things here uh, that I want to, that I think we should, anyway, whether I want to or not, that I think we should explore here as we prepare for Christmas. 
as we prepare for Emmanuel, God with us. One, I, we've got to reconcile here at least a little bit the nature of God's anger and its origin. And so I want to play in that territory here for a few minutes. I'm not going to do it comprehensively. I'm not going to answer all of our questions. But I, I think it would be wise as we prepare for Emmanuel, God with us, the ever-peaceful kingdom of Jesus. We, we need to do something to reconcile that with the many occurrences in Scripture where God is mad, <laughs> where God is angry. And, and to maybe do a bit more than simply say Old Testament, New Testament. Well, that's the old. Jesus is the new. That's true. I think we'd be wise to do an even more nuanced approach to that if we want to know this God of Emmanuel and the power of the Son, which is Jesus. Secondly, uh, I think we should reflect on the redeeming work of Jesus in the waiting. Because you're waiting on something. You're waiting on a root canal. You're waiting on a tooth to get pulled. You're waiting on something. Because, like, you're human. And I know I'm waiting on some stuff, too. And I'm going, God, when are you going to move on that thing? Uh, the team at Bible Project uh, have written a wonderful little article on exploring God's anger, and the Bible Project guys are just about as sound theologically as any two brilliant people whose words make sense to me, as I've ever come across. Um, they're great. I threw the article um, in the digital program, so I won't just re-preach their article to you. Check that out. I think it'll shed some light on some of this as we relate with God's anger. I, I might gently encourage you to not read it right now because um, I gave it to you digitally. You can read it later. Um, but they've done some really good work, and I'll, I'll piecemeal a few things they say there, so just kind of give them a little uh, shout-out there and check that out. And I think another thing from the outset here is, as we dive into this, and I know this is taking a while to get there, but it's a big topic of anger, is we first would be wise, I think, to recognize that all of our discussions about God, all of our prayers about God, all of our thoughts about God, all of our opinions about God, they are mere estimations of God. We're, we're estimating. We're, now, we're doing more than just simply guessing. We're not like shooting in the dark. We've got a text, and we've got the body of Christ, and we've got the Spirit living in us. So, like, we're not, we're not just shooting in the dark here, but we must recognize these are still just estimations of God. And I think that that's incredibly important as we think about anger, as we think about God and anger, because for the most part, we tend to ascribe the emotions or the character of God in light of how we experience said emotions and character pieces. This is really, really important, and we're, we're all doing this all the time. So it's not like I'm not trying to like bang us over the head. I just, can we just own that, right? So when we think about God as love, let's be real positive for a minute. God is love. We think about, well, yeah, God loves. I have a dog who I love. <laughs> Guys, I love my dog. Like I really love my dog. Beagles are only supposed to live 10 years. And he had his 10th birthday two days ago. And we gave him birthday presents to a dog. And we've been preparing, Aaron and I, for about six months that because Beagles only live 10, Champ just had his 10th birthday. We've been preparing for months that he's going to die soon. And so we keep telling him all the time he's going to die on his 10th birthday so that we're because I'm going to be a wreck when this dog dies. Like I'm going to have to take a couple weeks off and just be sad about my dog, right? I love my dog. 
So the, the way that I love my dog, that's clearly how God loves people. And you would say to that, no, right? No, it's my best estimation of love. I love my children. I would give my life for them in an instant. So that's how God loves me. It's an estimation. And, and, it's, and I shouldn't not ascribe that because it's my best estimate. I love Jen. That woman. So that's how God, no, not exactly. You get, you get where I'm going? These are estimations. And we should use estimations. What a foolish thing to not use an estimation if that's all I got. I should use at least that, but to recognize. So I'll beat the horse a little dead here, but I think this is important. I, you and I know what it is to provide and to be faithful to people who are thankless and unfaithful back. So I know what it is for God to be faithful to me. No. No, I don't. It's my best estimation of faithfulness. And so when we think of anger, when we arrive at the words in the text that say, God, that your, that your anger would subside, or that, God, you have been very angry with us, we, we must recognize that our immediate idea of what anger is, is our best estimation based on how we are angry. I know how Stu is angry. Is that how God is angry? Uh, not really. <laughs> I don't think... God's ever thrown anything across a room or put his fist through a wall. I mean, not that I've done any of that ever. i rarely ever angry, ever. (laughs) You guys can interview my son after. So we have to recognize that even our idea about what is anger to God, we, we are already superimposing on God our own experience with that emotion and saying, my version of anger is how you are angry, God. And so, God, you love just like me. You just, like, crank up your amp to 11. You just love a little more than me. God, you're faithful like me. You're just a little more faithful than me. Or you're, you're, more, you're faithful to more people than me. But your faithfulness is the same brand. And your anger is just like mine. It's maybe just a little slower. Or it's, like, a little more controlled. Or, like, you don't put your fists through walls. And so, but your anger still looks just like mine. No. No, we have to recognize those are estimations, right? Uh, Abraham Heschel uh, writes it this way. We've got this first screen if you want to follow along and, and in your notes as well. The prophets never portray God's anger as something that cannot be accounted for, unpredictable, irrational. It is never a spontaneous outburst, but a reaction occasioned by the conduct of humans and motivated by concern for right and wrong. So God the Father has never walked in the door from a bad day at work and taken out his anger on everyone else because he can't take it out on the people at his office or his job site or the moron in traffic. That's just not how the Father operates. And the Father does not have a short fuse like some of us have a short fuse where there's this sort of simmering underneath the surface that occasionally leads to outbursts of anger. And we go, oh, I don't know, I lost my temper. No, you didn't. You found it exactly where you left it last time with yelling and screaming 
You ever had somebody say that or said it? You're like, I lost my temper. No, you pretty much act that way every time you're mad. Self. This is not how God operates. God's anger ultimately surfaces always very slowly, but it surfaces in response to our lack of waiting. Catch this. God's anger is in response, at least in part, if not in most, to our inability to wait. Think about Israel. Exodus 32, right? Moses has gone up the mountain. This is a critical text for us as followers of Jesus, for, for our Jewish roots. Moses is up the mountain. He's getting the Ten Commandments. He's, he's with God on Mount Sinai. He's gone up the mountain and said, listen, cloud by day, fire by night. God's presence is with you. Don't move. I'm going up the mountain. Don't do anything stupid. I'll be back. And he goes up the mountain 40 days. You know the story, right? He's up the mountain 40 days. I don't know how many days in it happens, but it had to be pretty quick because it takes a while to melt down gold. And while he's up the mountain, they go, listen, God has left us abandoned. So let's gather all the jewelry and we'll melt it down and we'll make a gold calf and that will be our new God. And God gets so angry with Israel that he interrupts his time with Moses and he says to Moses, get down there. I'm going to wipe everyone out. For sake of time, I won't go to the text. It's in your notes. I encourage you to check it out, Exodus 32. But here's the wacky thing. Here's what's crazy that, that's difficult for us to wrap our heads around. Moses goes, no, God, don't go off on him. I've got this. It's the Stu revised version. But in essence, he says to God, God, be patient. Hold back the anger a little longer. And God subsides. It says God changed his mind, is what the text says. And we go, wait a minute, how can a person change God's mind? Because Moses is reflecting back God's very image back to himself. God, you're slow to anger. You're slow to anger, God. This is just who you are. And I'm going to reflect your image too, and I'm going to be patient with these dot, 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 people. <laughs> Whatever the dot, 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 dot is for you. You just use your favorite words there. So this is an invitation from God to Moses to say, do you understand the image in which you're made? Here's your chance. Let's wipe them out. I'm going to give you the inside track. We're going to kill Israel. Just you and me, God, right? This is Moses' chance. Oh, these people are driving me insane. And God says, okay, it's time. And Moses says, no, God, that's not how you work. And that's not how I want to work either because I and made in your image. Peter puts it great, the apostle Peter in 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This waiting, this, this patient waiting is so key in all of this. On page six of God is in the manger, a beautiful little Christmas devotional that we had out um, for everybody some years back, and I refer back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes these words. There, there, there's too many words for me to put them on the screen, but they're in your digital program if you want them, and they're really small, and I don't know how anybody will ever read them, but there you have. Uh, 
Not everyone can wait. This might be helpful to just close your eyes if you want, uh, if that helps you. And, and listen, it's a fairly lengthy quote, but I think it's beautiful. Not everyone can wait. Neither the sated nor the satisfied nor those without respect can wait. The only ones who can wait are people who carry restlessness around with them and people who look up with reverence to the greatest in the world. Thus, Advent can be celebrated only by those whose souls give them no peace, who know that they are poor and incomplete, and who sense something of the greatness that is supposed to come, before which they can only bow in humble timidity, waiting until he inclines himself toward us. The Holy One himself, God in the child in the manger, God is coming. The Lord Jesus is coming. Christmas is coming. Rejoice, O Christendom. You see, at the end, my friends, the end of our restless impatience for God to do something is the place where we can actually enjoy his company. We've got to come to the end of our restlessness, the end of our demanding that God do the thing that we want him to do. And we come to the end of that and we finally throw up our hands and we say, maybe it ain't never going to happen. And it's at that point we now have been ushered into the room if it's visualed as a room where we can enjoy God. That's where we can enjoy God. Because I, I just have never found another way, and I think Isaiah's wrestling with it himself, never found another way to actually enjoy the person of Jesus until he's no longer a genie in a bottle who's supposed to do stuff for me. Until we just get to the point where the person of Jesus will suffice me. For it is in Christ, in his life, in his ministry, in his sacrifice, in his promise to come again, that we are gifted with this waiting and the joy that can come to us in waiting for God's presence to arrive to a situation, to a scenario. This idea that is not merely the way of Christ that will save us, that is our salvation, but the person of Christ who is coming again. And this is a difficulty for all of us. There's a third element too, at least a third element that I'll mention. But, you know, I think most of us kind of tend to fall off the side of the fence is, you know, I just want the person of Christ. You could say it any number of ways, the presence of Christ. That's wonderful too. That's a great way to put it. But I just want the person or the presence of Christ. And then there's some others of us that go, I just don't get all that. But I just need the way of Christ, and I'm just going to practice the way of Christ. Now, the reality is neither is actually sustainable for a lifetime. Because there's just times where you just don't sense the person of Christ. You don't sense his presence. You go, you're, you're writing as Isaiah wrote at the end of Isaiah 64. God, when are you going to show up, man? And so in those moments, the only thing you have is the person of, or the, the, the way of Christ. And then there are times where the way of Christ is like, man, I'm just banging my head against the wall to do the stuff or to live a particular way. I, I need his presence. And, and then we add the third element that we get in the book of Acts in at least its fullness, certainly not its 
only or first picture is the body of Christ. And so we live in this sort of triangular, it's Trinitarian, but not in the God Trinitarian way, but this Trinitarian way of the presence of Christ, the way of Christ, and the body of Christ. There are times where we don't experience his personship, his presence, and we're not too interested in his way, but his body is what will sustain us. The people of Jesus. And this has been my greatest problem as I enter my 30th year of following Jesus. And it's this, that that my abundant life as described by Jesus is only possible when I engage the way of Christ, the person of Christ, and the body of Christ. These three things must all be engaged. Now, they're never perfect. Sometimes one is really strong and two are weak, and sometimes two are weak and one is strong. You know, I mean, we never have all three perfect. And some of us have a tendency to be really good in one of them more than the other. And again, I'm not saying these are the only three. I'm just, these are three keys But this is where the abundant life lives, and this is where the waiting can be endured. It's difficult for me to have one and leave the other two behind. And so we wait. We wait not as a people without hope, but as a people with hope. Let me take you to one last story, um, and I'm over time, so let me do this as quickly as I can and get off the stage. Jesus is in the midst of his ministry, and Jairus, this man, comes to Jesus and says, my daughter's died, you've got a healer. And Jesus starts working through this busy crowd, Luke 8. Maybe you're familiar with it, right? And Jesus is working through the busy crowd, and as he's working through the crowd, the woman who had been bleeding for years and tried everything grabs the hem of his garment, and she feels the power, or Jesus feels the power go out of him, and she's healed, right? And Jesus turns around and goes, who touched me? I felt the power go out of me. And she's healed. And then Jairus shows up somewhere in the melee and goes, ah, forget it, Jesus. My daughter already died. As if to say, you took too long, Jesus. You weren't fast enough. You missed your shot. And Jesus, again, this is the Stu Revised Version. Read the text for yourself and let the Spirit speak to you about it. I'm just trying to tease you. Jesus says, no, she's not. She's just asleep. I'll be there in a minute. (laughs) Parents, right? Chill out. You're fine. Walk it off. This is Jesus' giant walk it off. He goes, I'll be right there. And then he shows up, and you know, we know the rest of the story. He shows up, and he says, uh, what are his exact words? uh, Child, get up. And she pops up. She goes back to life. And then Jesus does this amazing thing, which is just one of my favorite things that he ever does ever, and I have no idea why exactly, but I can't wait to talk to him about it. He, he looks to the people in the room. There's only a couple in the room, and he goes, shh, this stays here. This isn't for everyone. Oh, what an intimate moment with the person of Jesus. What a gift we just got. And then Luke works right out of the room and writes it all down and gives it to us. <laughs> After all this, Lord, must you still refuse to help us? Will you continue to be silent and punish us? Let me leave you with one last question. And, I, and I'll put it in the first person because I'm right there with you. What am I waiting for God to do for me 
before I fully enjoy being with him. Maybe another way to say it. What am I waiting for God to do for me before I fully enjoy him being with me? This is Emmanuel, God with us. What am I waiting for him to do for me before I will enjoy him being with me? Pray with me if you would. Jesus, take these best estimations of who you are and how you work and use them to draw us nearer to your heart, we pray. Use these words we've sang, these words we've prayed, these thoughts we have wrestled with, and use those too, Jesus, to draw us near to you and to your heart and to how you work. May we view your anger not through the lens of how we respond to anger, but may we view it as your red flag being raised in our life to say, slow down and be patient and wait on me. You're getting ahead of me. You're getting ahead of yourself. You're denying your image bearing by trying to force my hand. So God, may we see you at work and may we rest in the knowledge and the confidence that you are at work. You are not slow as we understand slowness. You are on the move and you are with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.